Welcome to Fresh Image. Fresh Image is a nonprofit Catholic ministry committed to providing individuals and communities with resources to facilitate the full flourishing of the image of God in each and every single human person. Not only will you find hundreds of articles, convenient audios and presentations on our beautiful faith, but also catechetical resources to be used in the classroom, at the parish, and at the kitchen table. Today, we are happy to present Fresh Image Gospel Reflections from our founder, Tony Crescio. Tony reminds us that it is when we look into the mirror of Scripture that we discover the unique image of God we have each been created to be. My dear friends in Christ, last weekend we saw Jesus turn a would-be trap into an opportunity to teach us the most basic and important fact of human life. Two unlikely allies, the Herodians and the disciples of the Pharisees, believed they had come up with the perfect way to begin a movement against Jesus by posing him a question regarding paying taxes to Caesar. Is it lawful to pay the census tax to Caesar or not? They ask him. Knowing full well what they are up to, Jesus pushes past the surface-level question to the depths of human life. Show me the coin that pays the census tax, Jesus says to them, and then, in iconic fashion, turns the tables. Whose image is this, and whose inscription, Jesus asks them. The question is the answer. As discussed last weekend, by using the language of image, Jesus vastly broadens and reframes the issue. Instead of talking about taxes, we were suddenly in the midst of a deep anthropological lesson. Pay to Caesar what belongs to him, what bears his image, and pay to God what belongs to him, what bears God's image. Jesus' response here, we noted, is a way of articulating the most radical teaching of the gospel. Namely, that in the first instance, the human creature, in its entirety, does not belong to itself, but rather owes the whole of its life to its creator. This weekend, the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus once again. But as last weekend, our Lord turns a trap into an opportunity to extend his lesson on human life. Our gospel passage for this weekend begins with Matthew chapter 22, verse 34, which reads, When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a scholar of the law, tested him by asking, There are two things to note here. The first is related to our discussion last weekend about unlikely allies. Much like their relationship with the Herodians, the Pharisees were not natural friends with the Sadducees. The two groups were both teachers of the law, but took very different approaches to its interpretation. Sometimes this is highlighted in scripture when the two groups unite against Christians in order to turn the tables on them, as Paul does, for example, in chapter 23 of the Acts of the Apostles. Luke tells us that Paul knew that among the Sanhedrin by whom he was being questioned, some were Pharisees and some Sadducees. Much in the spirit of his master, Paul thus introduces himself as a Pharisee, and therefore a believer in the resurrection from the dead, in order to throw a monkey wrench into the whole affair. For their part, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection from the dead, so Paul's mere introduction throws the gathering into chaos. Luke tells us that, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the group became divided. In fact, just prior to our gospel passage for today, the Sadducees had questioned Jesus regarding the resurrection in verses 23 to 33 of Matthew chapter 22. 
With the Sadducees unsuccessful in their attempt to trap Jesus, the Pharisees take their crack at it today. Again, it bears repeating, as previously mentioned, that the fact that so many different groups are now attempting to trap Jesus makes clear that storms are gathering around the Son of God incarnate. The second thing to note here is how this particular Pharisee, whom Matthew tells us is a scholar of the law, approaches Jesus. Matthew writes that this scholar was testing Jesus. The Greek word Matthew uses is biraizo. Matthew uses the same word in his account of the episode where Jesus is tested by Satan in the desert after 40 days of fasting, very early in his ministry. The enemy took Jesus up to the parapet of the temple and, showing himself to be well-versed in Scripture, tempts Jesus by citing Psalm 91, verse 11, saying, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and with their hands they will support you, lest you dash your foot against a stone. To this temptation, Jesus responds by citing chapter 6, verse 13 of the book of Deuteronomy, saying, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. As we will see, Jesus appeals to the very same chapter of Scripture in response to the test he faces today. But important to note before moving on is that by describing how this scholar approaches Jesus in this way, Matthew is clearly indicating a nefarious motive. Most basically, we might say that this is an attempt to interrupt, however unwittingly, the salvific mission of the Son of God in the manner of Satan's temptation in the desert, or even Peter's rebuke of Jesus after Jesus' first prediction of his passion in Matthew chapter 16, to which Jesus briskly responds, Get behind me, Satan. You are an obstacle to me. You are thinking not as God does, but as human beings do. Testing Jesus, the scholar of the law asks, Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? Our own temptation here would be to note the nefarious intent of the scholar noted by Matthew and then rush to Jesus' response without ever asking ourselves an important question. Namely, why exactly would this question be considered a test for Jesus? We have discussed how various groups are trying to start a movement against Jesus, but how exactly could the way Jesus responds to this question in particular accomplish that? In order to see why, we have to make a clarifying point regarding the word law. To our ears, this word can carry any number of connotations, but situated within a Judeo-Christian religious context, it is likely to bring two things to mind. First, we may think the scholar is asking about God's moral law. Since the Enlightenment, God has often been depicted as divine lawgiver and enforcer, and this view may naturally arise in our minds. Second, the word law in this setting could call to mind the Decalogue, or the Ten Commandments, for us. In other words, we may hear the question as though the scholar were asking which of the Ten Commandments was the greatest. But neither of these assumptions would be correct. According to the rabbinic Jewish tradition, there are 613 distinct laws given by God in the Torah, the first ten of which are the Ten Commandments. These 613 laws in Hebrew, mitzvot, encompass every aspect of life, from how one is to relate to God, interfamilial relationships, to dietary regulations or kosher laws, and business practices. 
If you have ever heard of a young Jewish male celebrating a bar mitzvah, this celebration is directly connected to these laws. You see, one doesn't have a bar mitzvah, one becomes a bar mitzvah. Bar means son of, and mitzvah means law. So when he enters into adulthood at the age of 13, a Jewish male becomes a son of the law. Today, practices vary widely among adherents of Judaism, but traditionally, from this day forward, this new son of the law would have been obliged to keep all 613 commandments equally to the best of his ability. This is where the potential trap or test lies for Jesus in today's gospel reading. The scribe is asking Jesus to give priority or primacy to one of the 613 commandments when they were all to be equally observed. However, as he did last Sunday, Jesus pushes past the games to teach us something fundamental about the meaning of human life. Citing Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, Jesus responds, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This, Jesus says, is the greatest and the first commandment. Always full of surprises, Jesus doesn't stop here. The scholar had asked about the greatest commandment, but without being asked, Jesus adds a second, saying, The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law and the prophets depend on these two commandments. In the remainder of our discussion today, I want to take a look at each of the commandments given by Jesus as each on their own terms and in light of one another have something of the utmost importance to teach us. You shall love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. In the Gospel of Mark, a fourth aspect is included, with all your strength. These four elements of the human creature may seem self-explanatory, but it's worth dwelling on them a bit. St. Thomas Aquinas draws from St. John Chrysostom in his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew to explain these four elements in this way. Love, says Aquinas, can arise either from passion or the judgment of reason. From passion, when a man does not know how to live without that which he loved. From reason, inasmuch as he loves as reason dictates. He who loves bodily, loves with the whole heart. And he who loves out of the judgment of reason, loves with the soul and we should love God both ways. Making a very straightforward observation, again following Chrysostom, Aquinas next goes on to add that we tend to freely think about that which we love, and so we are commanded to love God with our whole mind. Finally, we are to love God with our whole strength, Aquinas says, because he who loves God transfers his whole self into him and expends his strength on him. It is this last point made by Aquinas where we gain a very simple and straightforward insight that, in actuality, sheds a great deal of light on the scholar's question to Jesus. We are to expend all our strength, all our energy, everything that we are and have on loving God so as to, as Aquinas says, transfer the whole of ourselves into him. We can be more precise in our language here and use the term virtue which within a theological framework can be thought of as a type of strength of soul or spiritual strength. The cultivation of virtue by the help of God's grace, then, gives us the spiritual strength to refer our whole heart, soul, and mind to God so that the whole of our lives stretch out towards increasing communion with Him. 
We can go one step further and connect each of these aspects of human life with a cardinal virtue. Those things which have to do with the body and bodily passions are associated with temperance. The judgments of our desire fall into the realm of the virtue of justice, which perfects the rational will. Our minds, or our reason, is perfected with regards to practical matters by the virtue of prudence. And finally, the virtue of fortitude enables us to persevere in the pursuit of what we love despite difficulty or trial. If we truly love God, then, we must pray for the grace to grow in these spiritual strengths so that we can enter into ever more perfect communion with Him and thereby become the creatures we have been created to be. This is precisely how Jesus gives a complete answer to the scholar's question. The scholar asks, Which is the greatest of the laws? And Jesus essentially says, All of them precisely because all of those laws were given to you so that every last aspect of your life would be directed to the love of God, from how you treat others to what you eat and how you do business. Everything, all of it, was meant to be given to God and thereby draw you into deeper relationship with Him. Said differently, the 613 commandments were given precisely to make you into a living sacrifice, a living gift to God in love, as St. Paul says in chapter 12 of his letter to the Romans. This is the goal, and the laws were given to help train us in this. To bring Jesus' interaction with the scholar of the law full circle here, then, we can say that becoming a bar mitzvah, a son of the law, was meant to make Jewish males true sons of God. The same holds true for us today. To dedicate everything we do and are to God is precisely what we have been created for as creatures created in the image of God. We can put this differently and say that the human creature has been created to be, at its very core, a worshiping creature. It's important to be clear about what we are saying and what we're not saying here. In the past, I have had students who hear theologians write that the human creature's purpose is the worship of God and understand it in a fashion that makes God seem petty or petulant. To them, it seemed like this was saying that God created us to tell him how great he is or sit in church all day singing hymns and reading the Bible. And while there's a nugget of truth in all of this, it all errs if we don't have the right basis of understanding. We were indeed created to worship God, and the life of heaven will be just this, an eternal and unending worship of God. But the life of heaven will not be static or boring. It will not be like the paintings, where all we do for eternity is gaze up at God in a mesmerized trance of some sort. Far from it. The life of heaven will be radically dynamic. In the life of heaven, the human creature will have come to perfect communion and thus full participation in the life of God, who is pure dynamism, or pure act, as Aquinas says. The life of the triune God is pure dynamism, or pure act, precisely because it consists of the three divine persons giving themselves completely to one another in love, and that radical and perfect exchange of love among the three divine persons is God. Participation in this radically dynamic love is the goal of the human creature. And when participation in this radically dynamic love is perfected, so too is the human creature. To enter into the eternal exchange of love that is the triune God in the manner possible for a human creature is worship. And this is done with the whole of what we have been created as, 
mind, body, and soul, all of human life. Learning to love like God and nothing less is what Jesus calls us to today. Recall now that Jesus does not stop here. Rather, he adds a second commandment. Jesus says, The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Again, it's really easy to gloss over or sleep on these words of Jesus because we have heard them so many times. But to do so would be nothing short of tragic. What Jesus is saying here gives unimaginable dignity to the human creature and has a twofold implication for us. Notice, please, Jesus says the second commandment is like the first. The first commandment was about loving God with all that we are, and now Jesus gives us a second commandment about loving our neighbor and says that this commandment is like or similar to the first one. In other words, we ought to love our neighbor like we love God or similarly to how we love God. To hear that should never be commonplace. Rather, it should blow our minds. Jesus is telling us today that we ought to love our neighbor in a way similar to how we love God. The only way this could become mundane or commonplace is if we really don't love God that much. If we loved God as we ought, with all that we are, with all of our mind, soul, and body, we would gasp at this second command. How could I give the whole of myself to my neighbor in love the way I do God, we would ask. The second command gives so much dignity to the human creature, places it on such a high level, in fact, that if we really understood it, it might sound blasphemous. Wouldn't loving a creature like we love God be idolatrous? Yes, but only if we love the human creature apart from God. Loving a human creature apart from God is indeed a form of idolatry. A form of idolatry, it should be added, that is a gross form of injustice to the human creature being loved in such a perverted fashion. Why do I say this? The answer brings in the second implication of the second commandment. And once again, Aquinas is helpful here. In his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, Aquinas asks, Why does Jesus say the second commandment is like the first? And then he answers, Because when a human being is loved, since the human being is made to the likeness of God, God is loved in him. For this reason, it is like the first commandment, which is about the love of God. We ought to love our neighbor like we love God precisely because the human creature, as discussed at length last Sunday, is created in the image of God. What's more, because the human creature is created in the image of God, the human creature cannot authentically be loved in any other way than with reference to God. To try and love a human creature apart from God is a failure to love the human creature then, because this creature was created for unity with God. Loved rightly, the human creature becomes an avenue for loving God. Thus commenting on the twofold command to love God and neighbor in Sermon 265, Augustine says, So while love of God is the great commandment that first has to be impressed on us, love of neighbor is the second. One begins all the same from the second in order to attain to the first. For if you do not love the brother whom you can see, how will you be able to love God whom you cannot see? We begin with loving our neighbor to reach the love of God, Augustine says. The idea here is that while God is loved with absolute primacy, experientially, our love for God is exercised by loving our neighbor. 
Consequently, in the dialogue, St. Catherine of Siena relates that, For all virtues are built on charity for your neighbors. Therefore, as soon as the soul has conceived through loving affection, she gives birth for her neighbor's sake. And just as she loves me in truth, so also she serves her neighbors in love. Though the first commandment concerning the love of God retains absolute primacy, because we have been created in God's image, human life cannot be lived without loving God in and through one's neighbor. Thus, the two commandments are truly inseparable. Put simply, one cannot love God and fail to love one's neighbor. What's more, learning to love our neighbor up to the point of giving the whole of ourselves in love to one another is learning to love as God loves. God created us to love Him in this way. My friends, this weekend Jesus calls us to something unimaginable. He calls us to love the way God loves, without reserve. Just as from all of eternity the three divine persons give themselves completely and without reserve to one another in love, so too we have been created to give ourselves completely to God in love. We are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and with all of our strength. But perhaps even more unimaginably, today Jesus calls us to love one another just as we love God, completely and without reserve. Therefore, today we must ask ourselves, first, whether this is something we actually strive for, and secondly, to what degree do we do this? To be sure, we all fall short in this, and thus must pray for the spiritual strength, the virtues, to live out the love we have been created for. To strive to live in such a manner, moreover, is to be the answer to the Son of God's prayer. In his Gospel, John tells us that on the eve of his passion, Jesus prayed for his disciples to the Heavenly Father, saying, I pray not only for them, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, so that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Today, more than ever, our world needs to hear the good news, the gospel of life, so that all may hear and come to know that God created them to be loved perfectly and completely by himself and one another. The world desperately needs to hear this gospel, and we proclaim it with the whole of our lives by learning how to love like God does. Thank you for listening to this week's Gospel Reflection. For more resources, please visit us at freshimage.org. And remember, when you live a fresh life, you will be a breath of God's fresh, life-giving air to the world.